a number of uh, months ago, I had uh, taken uh, my nine-year-old and, and my four-year-old to um, the bowling alley in uh, Linwood. Uh, they wanted to uh, do uh, an activity with dad. It was in conjunction with another birthday party. And so I said, sure, let's go to uh, the bowling alley. Now, you know what it's like, unless you're a professional bowler, you know what it's like. When you bowl with the bumpers, it makes you a lot better bowler than you actually are. Now, I prefer bowling with the bumpers because if not, my ball going to be in the gutter just about every time. And it was so fun watching my kids bowl because with the bumpers, it almost guarantees that you're going to hit a strike or near a strike just about every time. And every time that they would hit a strike, you know, they'd come back with big old smiles, jumping up and down. Dad, didn't you see this? This is incredible. I got another strike. And of course, so I'm celebrating and that's so great. And wow, you got a real future here. That's an anointing and God bless. And I was thinking about that in the context of like how we work and operate with the Father himself. You know, God by his spirit installs bumpers in our life that help us make us look a lot better than we actually are. And we're like, God, it just worked, man, this is incredible. And God's like, oh yeah, yeah, no, you did it all yourself. And, and that's why I love the Bible and the scriptures because it's like bumpers for our lives, it's bumpers for the church. And sometimes we make this whole following Jesus stuff a lot more complicated than it needs to be by you know, trying to adapt human wisdom or we get all introspective and try to embrace new philosophical tangents to try to self-improve our own lives and destinies. And the reality is, is that if you'll just follow how the scripture teaches and what the scriptures commands, it'll install Holy Ghost bumpers on the journey of your life and it will cause you to have a much better chance at getting a strike and you'll feel really good and people will celebrate and the father will be standing there behind the scenes going this is exactly how I set it up and I want to share with you today out of the book of Acts and, and I love the book of Acts because it's not just the history of the New Testament church it's the future of the New Testament church it's not just a story of how we started it's principles that we must continue to to employ day after day if we want to be in a New Testament church today. And the book of Acts in many ways is bumpers from an ecclesiastical perspective that help us so order our lives that we walk in the direction of Holy Spirit increase, breakthrough, and power in our day-to-day lives. In the book of Acts and in chapter 12, it, it chronicles an interesting story in the life of the disciples. This is 10 chapters after the outpouring on Pentecost. Christ has ascended into heaven. The 12 apostles are spreading out all over the known world. They are bringing the gospel in fulfillment of the Great Commission, which is talked about in Matthew 28 and in Mark 16. They're going into all nations, teaching the things that Christ has commanded them. They're teaching the nations to observe his commands. They are baptizing people in the Holy Spirit. They're laying hands on the sick. They are doing the stuff that Christ has told them to do. And in the midst of it, they are facing unparalleled and unprecedented persecution. And in Acts 12, it gives us insight into one of those persecution stories that I think help gives us perspective on how we ought to live our lives today. And I want to share that story with you this morning. Acts 12, starting in verse 1, the Bible says this, now about that time, Herod Agrippa, watch, laid violent hands on some who belonged 
to the church. Now, during the time of Christ and his disciples in the first century, the area in which they lived, which was Jerusalem and Judea, it was ruled by a family of brutal dictators who served the Roman Empire. Now, these dictators all shared the common title of Herod because it was a title that meant governor or ruler. Their actual name wasn't Herod. It was an honorific title that communicated a place of political influence and power. In the New Testament, we have at least three different Herods who all find prominence in the biblical record. The first is Herod the Great. He makes his appearance in Matthew 2 when he orders all the baby boys two years and younger to be put to death because he had heard rumors of a savior which was born in Bethlehem. Now, the Coptic church fathers estimate that upwards of 160,000 newborn baby boys were killed as a result of Herod the Great's decree. After Herod the Great dies, power is handed to his son, a man who will go by the name of Herod Antipas. He makes his appearance in Mark 6 when he orders John the Baptist to be headed. Eventually, Herod Antipas is exiled and power is handed to his nephew, a man by the name of Herod Agrippa. And this is the ruler who persecutes the church in Acts 12. Three different kings, three different time periods, one thing in common. Demonic resistance manifesting through social and political violence that is entirely aimed at harming the people of God and stopping the church of God. Hear me, friend. Herod isn't just a man. Herod is a spirit that attempts to steal the harvest, kill the prophets, and destroy the next generation. Herod might be the governor, but Jesus is the king. Herod might occupy a seat of political power, but the earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness there within. And you gotta hear me today, Pursuit. God never allows a Herod to reign without causing a remnant to arise. Herod might have the popular vote, but there is only one in heaven worthy to unroll the scroll. He holds the title deed to earth, and at his name, rulers are brought low, others are raised up. Oh, we got some Herods in the West, but we serve the God who rides on the clouds and judges the nations with his sword. It's amazing to me today, the amount of Christians specifically in the West who have developed theologies that have exempted them from things that are difficult. Oh, the world is just going to get better and better. Christians are going to turn the earth back into the Garden of Eden. And then Christ is going to be so impressed, he finally returns. Wrong. Once I give my life to Jesus, that means I'm never going to struggle with sin or sickness ever again. And nothing unfair will ever happen to me. Wrong. Oh, the church was persecuted in Bible times, but really not so much today because humanity is so much more tolerant. Wrong. See, the problem with this type of theological narrative is that it causes your faith to fall apart as soon as you experience something tough that your theological box didn't predict. 
Here's the truth. More than 70 million Christians have been martyred in the course of history. More than half were martyred in the 20th century alone. Christianity is the world's most persecuted religion and it's not even close. In the past year alone, 360 million Christians or one in seven believers around the world suffered significant persecution for their faith. In 1993, Christians faced high to extreme levels of persecution in 40 countries. That number has nearly doubled the 76 countries in 2023. Someone asked me the other day, Pastor, do you really think the church will go through the tribulation before Christ returns? I think a vast majority of the church outside of this country has been in the tribulation already for many years. Oh, I've had the great privilege of being in Northeast India and spending time with the persecuted church. And here is what is most striking about their testimony. The persecuted church isn't praying for less persecution. They are praying for the grace to endure so that they may receive the crown of life. I have sat with young men whose arms were cut off by their own mothers when they left the Muslim faith to follow Jesus. I have sat with others whose faces were disfigured with acid when they left the Hindu faith to follow Jesus. I have sat in their homes. I have listened to their stories. I have been stirred by their deep faith and I have become convinced of this reality. What gives me great hope for the future of the church today is not the technology of the American church. It is not the intellectualism of the European church. It is not the passion of the Latin church. What gives me great hope for our future is the bravery, perseverance, endurance, and stubborn refusal to give up coming from the persecuted church. And in the year 2023, if you ain't catching at least a little heat for the way that you live, the convictions you hold, the things that you believe, it's probably because you adopted a faith that means very little, impacts very few, and cowers in every conflict. See, everyone wants a first century church. Very few have the willingness to embrace first century problems. No friend, following Jesus ain't for the faint of heart. And if following Jesus is only attractive as long as it's beneficial to your paycheck, your cultural standing, or your social influence, my fear is that you are headed towards a collapse of self. Watch what the scriptures say, 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15, remember what I told you, a servant ain't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. John 16, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. <laughs> now watch what the scriptures say in verse one. Herod Agrippa, watch, laid violent hands on those who belong to the church. <laughs> mm. Watch this. Herod's activity in verse one is the demonic counterfeit to the Christian mandate. Watch. The enemy has laid violent hands on this region, so how do we respond? When the enemy sends disease, we lay hands on the sick so they recover, according to Mark 16. 
When the enemy causes disunity, we lift up holy hands without wrath or doubting, according to 1 Timothy 2. When the enemy manufactures depression, we clap our hands and shout unto God, according to Psalms 47. When the enemy sows carnality, we purify our hands, according to James 4. When the enemy tries to depress our work, we commit the work of our hands unto a holy God, according to Proverbs 16. The enemy's got nothing new, but Christ still has all authority, and no matter what comes our way, we have a faith that overcomes the world. Now watch, when Herod lays violent hands on you, the only way that you're going to survive is if you belong to Christ and you belong to a church. The Bible says Herod laid hands on those who belonged to the church. And every time Herod got violent, the church grew. And every time Herod executed an apostle, a saint, or a disciple, it became the seedbed for the church. And another convert was born again. Another city was reached. Another family was baptized. If you don't belong to Christ, if you don't belong to a church, when the culture lays its violent hands on you, instead of getting better, you'll get bitter. Instead of getting revived, you'll have a collapse of self. Instead of going forward, you'll end up going backwards. It doesn't say Herod laid violent hands on those who attended church. It said he laid violent hands on those who belong to a church. And we need people in our world today who belong somewhere. Well, I kind of just attend and I kind of just float and I'm kind of just a bumblebee and I'm pollinating autumn churches in the Northwest and I'm kind of just a visitor. You know, really, I'm just God's great gift to the body of Christ. And wherever I go, I just kind of am a celebrity. I just check in and check out. You ought to belong somewhere. You ought to belong in covenantal relationships somewhere. You ought to belong to a wife or a husband. You ought to belong to a church and a community. You ought to belong to a God in heaven who oversees the nations of the earth. You must belong somewhere. Watch verse two. Now Herod had the apostle James, who was the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this was met with approval amongst the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for the public trial after the Passover. <laughs> Acts 12 begins a dangerous pattern in the first century as the Roman government began a concentrated effort to try to stamp out Christianity by systematically eliminating anyone who claimed to have seen the resurrected Christ. Hear me, you can kill the messenger, but you can't stop the message. And the reality of Christ's resurrection is still the cornerstone of the church today. For if Christ was not raised, our faith is useless and our preaching was in vain. It makes no sense for the disciples to give their life for a myth. It makes no sense for the disciples to give their life for just a story. It makes no sense for the disciples to lay down their fame, their fortune, and their future because of a maybe chance possibility. They saw Jesus walk through walls. They reached into the holes in his side. They broke bread on the road to Emmaus. They saw him ascend in a cloud and be received by angels into heaven. They had a fire set on their heads in the upper room on the day of 
Pentecost and they became absolutely convinced this Jesus is not just worth living for, he is worth dying for. Peter crucified upside down. Andrew crucified on an X-shaped cross. Philip impaled by iron hooks in his ankles and hung upside down to die. Matthias stoned. Matthew impaled by stakes. Thomas killed by the sword. James, the son of Alphaeus, thrown from the temple tower and clubbed to death once he hit the ground. Thaddeus beheaded with an ax. Bartholomew flayed. Simon the zealot cut in half with the saw. And James is killed by Herod. In fact, the only apostle to not die a martyr's death was the apostle John, who was the brother of James, who died at the age of 88 in the city of Ephesus. And it ain't because the Romans didn't try to kill him. It's because he simply just refused to die. Now watch this. Herod kills the apostle James with the sword, but even in his death, life is being produced. Eusebius, the early church historian, records that the Roman soldier who was standing guard when James was executed was so moved by James' unwavering faith that this guard declared himself a Christian as well and was willingly executed alongside James at the exact same time. Hear me, as long as you keep your faith, regardless of the outcome of your circumstance, there is literally no way for the enemy to have victory. Now here, Herod seizes two apostles, one named James, the other Peter. One dies, the other lives. I'm not sure what to make of that reality outside of this fact. How the situation resolves itself is up to God. How I manage the testimony of my life is up to to me. Now watch, watch. There's a lot of folks we pray for. Some get healed, others don't. I'm not sure what to make of that outside of this fact. If you're praying for someone today who ends up passing away in the weeks or months to come, before you get mad or disappointed, I want you to consider the possibility that there may be a nurse or a doctor standing guard next to them in the hospital room who might never have gotten reached for the gospel outside the crucial witness of a dying person who refused to give up on a faithful God. I don't think God loved Peter any more than he loved James. I don't think God was up there drawing the short straw and said, sorry, James, I guess you're the one who's got to get his head cut off by Herod in this season. I really like Peter a little bit more. No, we don't always understand the way in which God works. No, we don't always understand the timeline of humanity and the way that he works through the narrative of the human condition. But at the end of the day, I got to trust a God who has seen what I don't, who has numbered the hairs of my head in the days of my life. I've got to trust a God who hung the planets and the stars without my advice, who formed humanity out of dirt and woman out of man. I've got to trust the God who in six days created the galaxies and on the seventh day took a nap just to flex on principalities and powers. I've got to trust that that God knows what he's doing. Now watch, nothing irritates the enemy more than a believer who confesses the reality of Christ's resurrection power. When you take communion, you confess his death and resurrection. When you gather for church on Sunday, you are commemorating the day Christ rose from the grave. When you pray for the sick, you are placing your faith in that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. 
Every single eyewitness to the resurrection was dead by the close of the first century. But 1900 years later, the church has never been more alive. Why? Because we still confess that which the early apostles gave their life for. Jesus is alive and that changes everything. Jesus is alive and whoever believes in him, although they may die, they shall live. Jesus is alive and because he lives, there is no power in hell or opposition from man that can keep me from my God-ordained destiny. Verse five, so Peter was kept in prison, but watch. The church was earnestly pray. <laughs> the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Sentry stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, suddenly, all of a sudden, without any pre identified, notice, email, calendar invite. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. He said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Now you gotta see this. You remember Jesus had the 12, but he also had the three, Peter, James, and John. Peter and James are very close relationally. Peter has just seen James executed and now finds himself in the same prison facing a similar fate. And the Bible says the night before trial was about to begin, Peter is sleeping. Why? Because peace is an inside job, not an outside one. Because when the Prince of Peace sits on the throne of your heart, regardless of the enemies who encamp around you. You've got a God who gives you hope, who has a peace that passes your understanding, causes you to keep your eyes on the prize, the author and the finisher of your faith, a man named Christ Jesus. I want you to see this. The prison doors are closed, but the heavenly doors are open. So the church takes advantage of that which is open to make their request known to God. Your preferred method of breakthrough might not be available this morning. Your preferred preacher might be on vacation this morning. Your preferred worship song might not have been sung this morning, but could you take advantage of that which has been opened unto you? The earthly door may be shut, but there is a heavenly door that remains open, which means we have confidence that he hears us and we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Now, many of you are familiar with the story. Peter escapes. Herod is so mad that he kills all the guards who are watching Peter because he is convinced that by conspiracy, Peter has escaped imprisonment. The story continues in verse 20, where Herod will meet an untimely demise in one of the most savage judgments we see in the New Testament. Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. An appointment with Herod was granted. When the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robe, sat on a throne, and delivered a public address to the people. The people, very pleased, gave him a great ovation, shouting, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Then suddenly, <laughs> immediately, 
without prior notice, an angel of the Lord struck him because Herod did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. And the word of God grew and multiplied. (laughs) I love that. They just throw that in as a little jab. (laughs) Not only is God striking dead Herod, principalities and powers, but in the very next verse, why? Because when the fear of the Lord comes upon a people and a region, it creates a highway for the word of God to grow, prevail, and for the church to advance. Why? Because fear and honor are two sides of the same coin. What you fear, you honor. What you revere, you honor. What you honor, you revere. You hold it in high esteem. You properly properly estimate its value, and then you act in accordance with the value that you have established. And when all of a sudden the awe and the revere of the Lord comes upon that region, the word of God prevails. (laughs) Now I have never made this connection before today, but verse seven and verse 23 have the exact same setup with completely different results. Watch what it says, verse seven. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, struck Peter, woke him up, and Peter was set free. Suddenly an angel of the Lord struck Herod, and Herod was eaten by worms and died. Hmm. It hit me. The same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. The same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. The same sermon that motivates one person unto righteousness bores another into bondage. The same revival that causes one church to grow causes another church to complain. The same angel that struck Peter under freedom struck Herod unto death. I don't think the angel of the Lord struck Herod any harder than he struck struck Peter. So that leaves me with one explanation. When the posture of your heart is not right with God, the same touch that causes one to live will cause another to die. Hmm. One of the things that people know about me is that uh, I I enjoy spicy food. Not not just like regular spicy food, but inhumane levels. (laughs) of physical pain caused by levels of spiciness. About three, four years ago, one of the guys in the church found out that I had a particular, you know, uh, interest in, in spicy food. And so they, they bought me one of these packs of the spiciest peppers, sauces, and powders known to man. And one of them, I don't know if you ever heard of it, this was named Ghost chili. Now, when I got this, I kind of underestimated the power of (laughs) what was contained in this little bottle. And I'll tell you this, a little bit goes a long way. And I'll tell you this, it'll burn you going in (laughs) and it'll burn you going out. I would sprinkle this thing on my food and spice things up and 
Really, it became like a challenge for me. How hot can I make this and still survive? <laughs> I was always having to be careful with it, you know, because we had these little kids and want to make sure that they never got their hands on something like this. And at the time, our, our daughter, Reagan, was about maybe two and a half years old, and she developed this tendency to get up at 4 or 5 a.m. and raid the kitchen before mom and dad was awake. We'd come downstairs and she'd open all sorts of things. Eating all sorts, I mean, nothing that's on the food pyramid, nothing that's healthy, just all sorts of random food, snacking four, 5 a.m. Try to put her back in the crib, 30 minutes later, she's up walking around the kitchen. i never forget the day I was in my room. About 4.30 in the morning, I heard a shriek come out of the kitchen. I run downstairs to find my two-and-a-half-year-old Reagan holding the ghost chili powder with the cap undone, with the chili powder all over her mouth. <laughs> I thought to myself, well, this is going to be the last time you ever do that. <laughs> Clean her up, get her water, try to console her. She was upset for, for hours. <laughs> And I thought about that situation in regards to Acts 12. <laughs> the same spice that adds flavor to my food adds a near-death experience to my daughter whose palate is not yet developed enough to receive the things that she is coming in contact with. I thought about that in the context of what God is doing in this season of the church. Revival will cause as many people to live as it causes people to die. Because when the winnowing fan of the Lord begins to blow, it'll separate everything that does not belong. It'll remove the wheat from the chaff. It'll remove the secular from the holy. If you don't get right, you'll get left. Because when God is in the house and you're in a season of suddenlies, he don't have time to mess around because there's a region that hangs in the balance. And I am imploring you today by the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. If there was ever a time to get your mind right, your heart right, your emotions right, your sexuality right, your patterns right, your money right, your generosity right, your lifestyle right, your relationships right. If there was ever a time to get right, it's right now. Because the angel of the Lord is placing his hand on the pursuit northwest. And he is opening a door that no man can close. Herod makes the same mistake as Lucifer. He forgets who belongs on the throne and attempts to take the glory for himself. And both are struck down from the positions they occupied. You know what's interesting? Modern scholars believe that not only did Herod Agrippa die by, eating, by being eaten by worms, but his grandfather, Herod the Great, died the exact same way. It's almost like if you don't root out toxic behaviors in your generation, the only thing you do is pass them on to the next one. You can wish all day long that you won't be like those who came before you. 
But what are you doing right now to stop this thing from being passed on to your kids and to your grandkids? Hear me so clearly. Either you will resist pride or pride will cause God to resist you. When scripture says pride comes before a fall, it's saying that pride creates a runway for destruction to land upon. Pride isn't just a bad idea, it's the setup for your downfall. Don't forget the reason for your success, your influence, your wealth, your promotion, your favor, your open doors. It is not the result of your own ingenuity. It is the result of a gracious and a benevolent God. And I think in closing, this is the secret sauce here at Pursuit. When the Lord touched us, it caused us to live because we had already died to the applause of the crowd. When God surprises you by his spirit and strikes you in the side saying, wake up. That prayer you was praying, it's now time. That miracle you were believing for, it's now time. That campus you were believing for, it's now time. That relationship you were believing for, it's now time. When it's now time, you don't have time to get ready. You better be ready. When the angel of the Lord touches your life, your heart need to be right. Your mind need to be right. Your relationships need to be right because the opportunity of a lifetime only exists during the lifetime of the opportunity. And I wanna be made alive by his touch, not eaten from the inside out. It's revival time, Pursuit. It's revival time, Snohomish, Seattle, Kirkland, Pacific Northwest. And when the Lord says it's time, I wanna be ready in my right mind and in my right spirit because I refuse to get left behind for the very thing that we have been contending for, for a generation, revival in our day and reformation in our lifetime. Come on, stand as we close.